2: Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk again to Dr. Abdullah Ali. You're most welcome, sir.
3: Thank you, Paul. Great to be here once again.
2: Fantastic. those who don't know, Dr. Abdullah Ali is Professor of Islamic Law and the Prophetic Tradition at the famous Zaytuna College in California. Now, is Islamic law unjust and biased against women? This is a popular accusation made against Islam. As an expert on Islamic law, Dr. Abdullah Ali has kindly agreed to discuss his new book entitled There is No Male Preference in Islamic Law. What is your new book about and why did you feel the need to write
3: it at this time? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The book There is No Male Preference in Islamic Law actually is a translation of a work written by one of my teachers from morocco um, Sheikh ibn muhammad ibn muhammad al-qasim al uh, who passed away in 2015 um, the book the arabic title is La uh, which some translated there's no maleness uh, in islamic law or islamic jurisprudence but re- realistically the author's intent is uh, that there's no male preference in islamic law uh, in other words, uh, the idea that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala that He favors men to the harm of women uh, is a baseless claim. Uh, rather, uh, there are nuances, there are wisdoms. There is um, a context uh, to these particular judgments, and Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala uh, is, of course, can never be accused of injustice. And uh, the uh, ultimate goal, we can say, of the author is to contribute to repairing the relationship between men and women, which has been um, largely corrupted uh, by um, the uh, external powers of Islam, uh, those who have uh, promoted things like uh, feminist uh, feminism and, and other ideologies from postmodern thought, uh, which are undermining the family. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the reason that I decided to translate this work is because we're living ourselves in a time um, where we are seeing uh, the fruits of the efforts to undermine the family, right? Um, and I think that many, many people are starting to wake up to realize that this has been a very um, long uh, projected uh, campaign to undermine the family. And and one of the ways that... Um, the postmodernists have uh, have undermined uh, or chosen to sort of undermine the family it has to do with uh, language among other things. But language is extremely important, extremely important tool uh, to utilize uh, if you want to sort of undermine someone else's power and then assert your own. And mm-hmm. so for instance, um, uh, the world has become accustomed to the idea that a man can have a husband or that a woman can have a wife, right? This is sort of starts here. And so this idea that first and foremost that um, what we call gay marriage is a valid marriage in the side of God, or at least in the side of um, of society, uh, which we say society has capitulated to that first and foremost, you know, but we have to understand that there's a linguistic trick, trick involved here. Uh, mm-hmm. Language itself, uh it contains the metaphysics of a people right that that, you know when people you you study language deeply you understand that there's a metaphysics involved uh -hmm. in language uh itself you know so we we go from there and then to also the idea that a child can have two fathers or a child can have two mothers uh -hmm. or that um you know that a man uh, can become a woman, or that a woman can become a man, and then an insistence upon um, utilizing particular types of pronouns to prefer, uh to certain people, or in other words, though people insist that when you talk about me, that I want you to utilize this particular pronoun when you talk about me, which itself, so, as we know, is very much uh, is absurd, you know. So these are things, of course, contributing to the undermining of of family and we know that uh satan is no more happier uh than when he's able to split up a man from his wife a man from his from his wife uh and uh there's we know right. just sorry just intro
2: is the, isn't there a verse in the quran that says that satan or shaitan is the avowed enemy of mankind so is speaking, yes. that's what he does he seeks to destroy undermine subvert uh the good the good qualities of god's creation i suppose i mean that that's what actually described as such in the quran itself
3: right exactly exactly Multi- multiple times and many many different verses where god refers to satan as he an open or about enemy to 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 mankind um speaks about the fact that uh that satan he attempts to make um, sin fair-seeming to people, uh, that he has promised to undermine humanity, to cause dissension and disunity, to lead us to change God's creation, among other things. This is what we find. And also in the prophetic tradition, we find that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has stated that Satan, he places his throne over the waters, and then he dispatches his minions into the earth in order to cause, uh, dissension and to cause division and to seduce humanity, right? And so and those that are closest to him are those who are uh, the, the greatest or the most skilled at their beguilement, you know, of, of humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it says in this particular tradition that one particular jinn will come to him and say, oh, so-and-so, I did such-and-such, such. you know. This, and so Satan will say, oh, that's nothing. That's something small. It's, it's insignificant. And then eventually someone comes and says, today I have separated a man from his wife. And then Satan becomes extremely elated. And then he brings them closest to him and said, yes, you're the one, right? Mm-hmm. You so, so this is, uh, like I said, This is, I believe that, that the time is ripe for people to hear uh, these type of arguments and also understanding and even consider, seriously consider uh, the, whether or not these particular arguments are wise or uh, they're, they're reasonable. Uh, and especially for people of faith, right? Especially for mm-hmm. people of faith, because Satan not only wants to divide the family, but he he's really, really happy, of course. If he's able to divide a believing family a family of believers right you know I all-
2: think what you're saying is, it's so helpful because so often we focus on the explicit ostensible causes of division and, and subversion a mm-hmm. certain ideology a certain political party a certain uh but in fact you're saying there's an occult a hidden warfare uh, yes. that's going on that is not immediately perceptible to uh, us just simply looking around the world or looking at the media there's behind the scenes behind the curtains, there are active attempts to undermine the family and and change god's uh, natural order, and I think that's quite a sobering uh, assessment and it's not just found in the Islamic tradition, the Christian tradition yeah. uh, in the New Testament as well uh, famously uh, where, where Satan is, is portrayed as a prowling lion who seeks to devour people a, mm-hmm. a similar portrayal of, of, of the devil as a, a a malicious agent, the enemy of mankind.
3: Right, exactly. And he has his minions, you know, not only among the jinn, but, but also among people. The Quran actually goes on and says, إِنَّ uh, la <laughs> That we have made uh, the demonic forces the allies of those who reject faith, those who lack faith, right? In other words, I mean, the atheists and those who reject God and reject this messenger, that we have made them the allies of the demonic forces or these demonic beings right that we refer to often as jinn and then those that who are servants of Satan. <clears throat> and so, so he has his minions in the earth and they're doing his doing his work. And we have to uh remember this, you know, as believers, you know, being a believer um assumes that there are certain things about our lives, about our way of being, uh, which are incomprehensible, that that are inexplicable, right? You know, from a um an empirical basis that we believe in god even though we're not able to um, empirically prove god's existence we know god exists rationally and then also through our subjective experiences right Uh, but you know we were unlike for instance trying to point one in the direction of, of mecca you know we can't necessarily uh we can't do that with respect to god right you know we believe in angels believe in uh the power of prayer we believe uh and um you know the the benefit of the recitation of the quran and the dhikr of allah the remembrance of god um but we also believe uh in the effects of of witchcraft and mm-hmm. the evil eye right these are things that go uh hand in hand with being a believer and in the quran it's really interesting that one of the particular um tropes that is uh, that are utilized uh in the quran is the sort of warfare trope in other words god uh, appeals to humanity uh, uh, by warning us against hidden enemies, you know, the, those who are invisible to us, right? And and he says that, you know, that no one knows the forces or the troops of God, you know, that, you know, that no one knows God's troops or his soldiers except for him. You know, mm-hmm. the prayer niche is called the mihrab, and the mihrab is an Arabic word, which we say is a tool noun, Ismo'ada. And other and the root of that word is the word harm, which is for warfare. So the prayer niche is a tool of tool of war, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there are factions in this army, you know, they are a faction, God's faction, then Satan's faction, right? So demonic and angelic forces, they interact with this world, they have an influence on uh what we think and what we see. And then they're inspire their minions to to do their handiwork and others and undermine the family, right? And so these are some of the major Reasons why I felt a book like this was extremely important for now.
2: Yeah, I just showed people the cover of the book There we are uh, a fascinating new work from lamppost education initiative mm-hmm. um, And you can order your copy uh, through the website. You can see the uh, address there um,
3: Right mashallah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah this is uh, I wanted to do this little bit a, a short presentation on this particular book I um, as mentioned, the book, uh, which I've entitled, uh, There is No Male Preference in Islamic Law, is, uh, is, an, is a translation of a work entitled, Ladu written by the late great scholar of Morocco, Sheikh Mohammed Al-Tawil, uh, uh, Rahmatullah now, I wanted to speak just a little bit first and foremost about the shake himself.
0: Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, and if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Uh,
3: Sheikh, Sheikh Mohammed Ibn, Ibn Mohammed Ibn Qasim Tawil, uh, a scholar of great prestige, uh, great renown uh, in Morocco. Uh, he was uh, sometimes referred to as the Mufti of Fez. Uh, and in one sense, he is also the Grand Mufti of Morocco, uh, being that he was sometimes uh, standing for uh, Sheikh Mohammed Al-Ghazi Husseini, who was also a late, uh, who passed away some years ago as well, who was actually the official Grand Mufti of Morocco, and sometimes on a special uh, program called al Mufti, he was substitute for him, Sheikh Mohammed Ta'wil would. You know, so he was uh, known in throughout Morocco, he was also known in many um, um parts of the Muslim world through his writings. and as a matter of fact, I remember one time I was visiting him and actually crossed paths with a uh, a student from South Saudi Arabia who was visiting his home to study with him. you know so I knew that uh, people knew who he was, you know they took him very seriously mm-hmm. as, a, as a legal scholar. Uh, and he was a very sincere man. Um, uh, he was a very talented teacher. Uh, he was to he 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 teach at as, uh, as the Ijami al the historical Karawin University uh, and among other places as well, you know, but uh, his talent really showed, you know, when you compared him to the other teachers in the traditional school, the mosque itself, the central mosque of the Karawin, uh like um, you had a, a sort of a mixture of scholars of teachers there. And some of the scholars were only trained uh, traditionally. Um, and then some were trained both traditionally and in this sort of we call the modern methods of teaching, right? And so Sheikh Muhammad Tadwee was also called Dr. Muhammad Tadwee because he also was trained in modern methods of teaching. And he was very skilled as, as a very skilled teacher for this reason, you know. Many of the classical scholars, unfortunately, traditional scholars who didn't have modern methods um, of teaching um, um, sort of uh, qualifications Uh, often um, struggle with imparting knowledge to students. In other words, a scholar will stand or sit on his his chair and he can bedazzle the student, you know, and and mesmerize the student by all the detailed knowledge that he has and he can sort of depart, you know, digress to this particular point, you know, it's a very fine linguistic point, fine uh, matter of theology, fine point of, of law, right? But the students themselves sometimes, they get lost in the midst, in the midst of that, you know, because they come there to learn. And I actually remember sitting in one particular uh, um, uh with one of the other scholars, and, and the students were begging the, the, the teacher to come back, right, <laughs> come back, come back. Sheikh uh, Muhammad Ta'wil, fortunately, was very gifted in this particular regard. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, Imam Zaid Shakur, uh, may Allah preserve him, also had the opportunity to spend time in, in some of his uh, his, um, his circles as well, so he knows this sort of gravity or the um, the, uh, the type of mastery that this particular man had, you know mm-hmm. that he, so so he has many published works. Uh, this one happens to be one of his published works, um, and I just wanted to go through just a list of um, most of his of some of his main works to give you an idea of the breadth of his knowledge and his major concerns. Uh, so these these first two works here actually. I personally translated them some years ago. The first was called "The, the Special Characteristics of the Maliki School," the al Matham al Madiki, which is actually a lecture which he gave in the presence of Morocco, of the King of Morocco, right? Uh, king Hassan Athani, uh, which was the previous king, the current king's uh, father, who uh, late father, right? So this is a lecture he gave in, in his presence, and so and it was it was like, transcribed, and so I took the time to. Translate that particular work uh, some, some time ago. And then the second one uh, is a, an article uh, on Zakat and Currency and its uh, Zakat and Currency and its new developments, uh, which I also you can find this on my web on the website, Lamp Post Education Initiative website. Um, he has a book on organ implants and donations in Islamic law. He's written about um, the matter of medical expertise in DNA testing and determining paternity, which is really very amazing opinion that he has on this point, which I don't have time to go into. Uh, he has another work, The Islam and Islamic Solution to the Problem of Poverty, uh, which is I think is a very important work to, to, to eventually translate as well. Um, um, you know, the issue of Islamic shared marital wealth because often what people talk about is, okay, what if we get married and, and both of the spouses, they have wealth, they accumulate wealth or they have wealth and they they, they they get married, you know, how do you handle this, you know, say if one particular spouse dies or they get divorced and things like that, you know, how do you uh, handle those type of issues? Is it shared, you know, or, or just simply treat each one as individually, you know, and he has multiple scenarios. And dealing with this topic. He's written on the issue of Islamic corporations. Uh, he's written uh, on uh, Islamic kids. He has his own original poem on Islamic law, Islamic inheritance law, and which really was a very strong suit of his Islamic inheritance law, wills, uh, corporations. Uh, and then also just some uh, more um, um, sort of uh, books for the public related to, well, not really for the public, but for like uh, young students of knowledge. You know, the juristic preferences of Amr al-Khattab uh, the, uh, Something about the life The intellectual life of uh, Umm al-Mumineen Aisha As well and I, so, like, I, like
2: the, I like the title of the last one there The family and intellectual life of Aisha Mother of the faithful That sounds like a really juicy work actually
3: yeah. Right, uh, so So my intention actually is to Eventually um, um, Translate all of these At least the smaller uh, Treatises among them Um <laughs> The others are a little bit larger work, you know, but I do think this is an important scholar for the English language, and you know, then more and more people need to be exposed to his thought, right? Because he's very original in, in a lot of ways, and also very organized in the way. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I imagine that reading the, the translation, you get that impression, you know, that he has a certain way that he he has a very logical organization to his work and his thought. Right. You know, and so so of course the work that we're concerned with right now is the work. Uh, there's no male preference in Islam or Islamic law. And this particular work, uh, it challenges the claim that men are preferred in Islam over women, or in other words preferred to the detriment of women. So men have all the goodies, women, they got it bad, right. And so that stereotype as we know that we've been living in for living with for a very long time uh, from our uh, sort of uh, in particular from our Christian and uh, Jewish interlocutors, and of course, atheists as well nowadays as well, you know. And so he 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 takes it on, right? You know. And he, this is not the first book that's been written of this genre. There are multiple scholars who have written uh, about this genre. Uh, but I do think that what somewhat uh, distinguishes him in this particular regard is that he's very unapologetic. You know. So the book is an apologia, but also is un- unapologetic in the sense that he champions. Uh, the Islamic um, intellectual legacy that he is not afraid to say, "Hey, the ancients were right, uh, and their interpretations, uh, and what society needs is an is an influx of this wisdom, right? Once again, in order to become a a, a society which is whole, which is whole, yeah. So, so the book is uh, divided into three basic chapters and. We can say that the first chapter uh, fundamentally highlights uh, the following issues. One, um, he highlights or points out that jurists, Islamic jurists, are not legislators, and he said that this is one of the fundamental errors that many of the critics of Islam make when they say, "Okay, well, these Muslim jurists, all they, they all they just did was they created this legal system which favors them uh, over women, right?" Uh, and and it goes way back you know in the opinion of these people and of course you some people that go as far as to say that you know that men created the quran in order to keep women oppressed and other people oppressed you know but they say with regards to islamic laws oh this is all sort of the the, uh, the 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 this is the fanciful thinking of muslim men right who wanted to maintain psychological and uh and material superiority of a woman you know so he said no 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 you have a misunderstanding here an Islamic jurist is not a legislator, you know, because you make it, so this challenge is to say, okay, well, they just made it up, you know, or that if they really were concerned with justice, they would have passed judgments which were much more compassionate, quote unquote, towards women, but rather they've they've employed or passed these judgments and created this law, which actually is less compassionate towards women, you know, uh, but they need to sort of uh, get with the program and sort of modernize, and uh, we uh speak a bit more about equality, et cetera. And so he says, no, no, a jurist is not a legislator. Uh, a jurist is someone who whose aim is, is to elucidate uh the revealed law, it is to discover right the uh the, the divine intent, right, if possible, right? Uh and to then judge on the basis of that, because the assumption is that or the presumption is that God has already ruled with regard to those things uh, we have no clarity about, right? And the jurors, the task or the role and the duty of the jurors is to actually employ the method of uh, legal theorizing in order to reach a judgment which he or she believes strongly it reflects the intent uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? You know, and for this particular reason, Imam al-Shafi'i, uh, mm-hmm. one of his famous quotes is that, uh, which, was find, which we found in his risala when he's criticizing the Hanafis for the employment of a a rational tool called istihsan, he says, mm-hmm. That the mushtahid or the scholar has no right to legislate. Uh, no scholar has no right to legislate, right? And, and it was also because of this understanding that uh, another of, of his famous statements is that uh, my opinion is correct with the possibility of being incorrect and the, the opinion of others is incorrect with the possibility of being correct. Because they said once the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> has left this world, that there is no direct line of communication between uh, humanity and God. Mm. Right? You know, anything else, it just simply interpretation, is speculation, right, so we might be, cor- may be correct, maybe incorrect, right, in our judgment, right, you know, but we are not motivated by animus against woman, right, this is not what motivates us, what motivates us is our desire to remain sincere and committed to the precepts of the law, Right. This is it. And so if Allah has said that women are to be treated in a certain way or they should be given a certain shares of certain things, then we can only give them what God says they're supposed to receive. Right. And we're not able to change God's law, right? For so you know, for some other
2: just to say an obvious point here, the very meaning of the word Islam uh, is is submission. You know, a Muslim is supposed to submit to the divine decree. He's not supposed to make it up and and uh, decide to abandon certain things because they they please his desires or they're not in conformity with certain political views. The very nature of the faith is submission to God. So th- th- this is an expression of that, I suppose.
3: Right, exactly. Yeah, and the Quran throughout it condemns following one's fancy over and over and over. Right, you know, it threatens people and talks about how on the day of judgment that those who followed will be will 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 will, will be questioned about who they follow, Right, and once they uh once they see the the punishment uh, lurking over them, you know, then they of course they'll try. To uh, to disavow those people, right? And there are multiple verses throughout the Quran about that they're condemning people just simply being blind followers or following their their lower desires, following their fancies, right? You know, to follow your fancy is a bad thing, right? In Islam, you know, that Islam, as you stated, it means submission, right? It means compliance with God's God's commandments, right? And uh, regardless of how uh, irrational, unreasonable they may seem to you, right? They may seem to you be unreasonable, right? They may seem to you even period at times to be unjust, right? But but if God's if you believe in God, you believe that the Quran has been revealed from God and God says that he is not unjust, hmm. then you are in violation, right? Yourself, you know, because it, if if you, if it seems like it's unjust, then you should accuse your own mind, right? Rather than accuse the Quran or accuse Islamic jurists of actually uh, of doing something which is unjust, right? They're just self, They're just trying to be committed to the tradition, right? Now, of course, we want to be clear that this doesn't mean that every single Islamic jurist throughout Islamic history uh, um, um, did not uh, um, um, suffer some level of animus against women. You know, you do find that among certain scholars, right? In particular, uh, the closer you get to our time, you know, you find that much more common rather than uh, the ancient world, right? Um, because you can, when we look closely at the statements of the those of the ancient world, realistically um, there is always some sort of um, context uh, uh, that that actually leads them to make certain um, com- leads them to certain conclusion with respect to men and women in their relationship. At, at any rate, you know the first chapter. It, 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 one, of the, one of the main issues, I think, most important issues of that chapter is this idea of laying uh, laying aside, also putting to rest. the the idea that an Islamic jurist is a legislator and just simply made up the Islamic law in order to privilege himself and privilege men to the detriment of women, right? And so, but any mistakes that originate from those scholars, issue from them that those particular mistakes are theirs to bear alone, right? And the other scholars who, who ask you to detect those mistakes there's their job to highlight what those mistakes are, and then make the correction right when when it's appropriate, right? You know, as opposed to just simply saying I'm going to reject this because I don't like it. You know, they'd rather, they rather they they believe that the prophet says something. If they believe Allah says something, then they embraced it wholeheartedly, trying to be uh, people committed to faith. Um, chapter the second chapter, oh, I would say one of the most uh, uh, perhaps one of the uh, most important questions that the second chapter it answers is, is why female jurists are often less accommodating to women than male jurors in Islamic law, right? Because if we say that the Muslim, the male Muslim scholars just simply made up these rules and made everything easy for themselves and made everything difficult for women, then why is it that we find women in Islamic history who actually much more uh, strict with respect to their opinions about women and their freedoms as opposed to those men. But for example, um, Aisha, Anha, the Prophet's wife, you know that she believed that Muslim women should be prevented from going to the to the mosque, right? That it, you know, so she 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 knew the hadith of the Prophet that said, "Do not bar the bondswoman of God from God's mosque, right?" or the the the, the mosques themselves. Um, uh, but she was reflecting upon what she had seen during her time. She felt that the women during her time were a, a, a bit more loose; that they weren't as conservative as the women during the time of the prophet. And so times had changed. And so, he, and so she said, "Well, if the prophet had been alive today, then, uh, then he probably would have he would have prevented them not to probably, but she said he would have prevented them from going to the mosque." Right? These women. Uh, on the other hand, the, the male scholars were of a different view. Among the Sahaba, Ibn Umar and Umar ibn Khattab said, "No, the Prophet said this, and so we can't prevent the woman from going to the mosque." Right? Uh, another example of this is uh, the Sahabiya Fatima bin Qais, who, after uh, being divorced from her husband a third time, which is, makes the divorce or uh, the reconciliation, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, impossible, um, during her waiting period uh the prophet had ruled at least they they understood that the prophet had ruled that her husband had no obligation to provide for her any maintenance during her waiting period or nor any housing right so fatima that was her opinion she felt that any woman who was divorced the way i was divorced this is the ruling of islam right you have no right to to housing you have no right to um you also have no right to uh to any maintenance like food and things like that right on the other hand, Ummah al khattab said, "No, I believe that a woman who is in her waiting period for, from the third divorce also has to have the right to maintenance and to housing." Right? That was his opinion. Right? And in the Maliki school, it's uh, you know that she has a right to housing but not a right to, uh, to 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 maintenance. Right? You know, with regard to her 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 her, her meals. Right. Uh, in other words, these male scholars took a much more lenient position than the female scholars in that situation. And so, so Sheikh Muhammad Tabid goes on and says, "Oh, the only reason this happens is because what was most important for these people was not that this was a woman or this was a man. What was important was them being uh, dedicated to this to scripture." And following the evidence, and that's that's what led them to line this line. And so so if it is true, then we would find that there was a clear bias, or there were the women preferred one thing, uh, which is in, a, in line with what we find today, and the men they preferred the opposite. But what we, and he gives multiple examples of this. And you know, we don't have time to go through all the examples, but he gives multiple multiple examples of this, undermining the claim that. You know that this is all because we're men that we're that, that these rules exist because men were the ones who made the rules you know but no but there were females and there were women as well who are scholars as well right and they and they agreed with the men or they they disagreed with the men and, and sometimes took a much more uh strict uh a, a stringent position when it comes to these type of issues and then in the last chapter chapter three among the questions uh that are answered are uh, why are men and women treated equally in certain laws? Right? Uh, how should the believer respond to things that are hard to explain? Right? And uh, so he goes through a, a list of uh, or multiple chapters of some of the most popular areas where you know these particular issues um, are highlighted, or you know, the, you know the issue of inequality are often um, um, spoken about. Now, I would say that the book implicitly answers another question, which I think is this is really the more important question, you know, when we start talking about these issues. And today, of course, it's very difficult for us to talk about them uh, or raise such a question, right? And the question is, are some people and things better than others?
2: it's basically me by better than i mean it's such a vague statement i mean we need to look at specifics you know better yeah. at what you know is, is this 100 meter olympic gold medalist sprinter better at running than me yes <laughs> i mean right, you yeah. admit that you know to give a, a silly mm-hmm. example but of course people are better than others at certain things it doesn't mean that they are superior in their value before god i mean or maybe but um it, it's The question is so is frustratingly vague. That's why I'm trying to say.
3: Right, right, yeah, exactly. And I think that this is a fundamental mistake that people have made: is that they associate advantage, they associate favor in some particular regard with God's love. Right. This is what I believe personally. I think often we talk about, okay, this is about this is about equality or inequality. Right. Right. This is really the only thing we're concerned about. But why are we concerned about quality or equality or inequality, right? And I think that really at the root of this is the idea that if you are better than I am in some particular regard, mm. and that means that God loves you more than He loves me. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, because we can reflect upon this in multiple ways, right? Um, I, I get an example from American history. Um, throughout the 20th century, and in particular after the end of slavery, many Blacks we know, they adopted Christianity. Hmm. And and some of them adopted it while they were slaves, right? Once they were allowed to become Christians, right? And they were given a picture of Jesus. And that picture of Jesus was of a white man, a European. And so many Blacks, you know, internalized that. Um, And so you can understand, you know, why the concern exists because we do have this history of exploitation you know psychological domination right you know so 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 people were led to you know to assume that okay well if that's god god looks like my oppressor mm. right and so if god looks like my oppressor then maybe god loves my oppressor more than he loves me and maybe that's why i'm oppressed it's because God has chosen my my oppressor, uh, uh, which you know I might as well accept is not really my oppressor, but rather someone uh, of a paternalistic um, right, right over over me.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So therefore, I should obey that 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 person, right? You see, so we can understand like why people um, may feel this way. You know, or make this assumption, have this assumption, these type of issues, right? You know, but but the, the fundamental mistake, you know, in that is this, you know, uh, this sort of, again, we have this sort of, I guess you're saying, or, organic syllogism we create in our brains, right? You know, it's like, well, you know, that better, therefore more loved, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's the error, right? You know, there's no way, not, nothing in scripture says that, you know, that just because a man is physically stronger than the woman, right, that... That man is more beloved to God, right? Mm. There's nothing that says that, or that the man he be faster, you know, or that, etc. I mean, we talk about so many different examples of this. You see, you know, and so, so we have to fight, tooth and nail, right, to sort of, to over- overcome those sort of impulses, those sort of thoughts, right, that we have, right, to to make such draw such a conclusion. The reality is that some people and some things are better than others and mm-hmm. so, but but those uh, but those areas as you have stated paul i mean they they're they're in, everything has a context in certain regards you know so as i've mentioned like a tall person is better than a short person if the task at hand is to reach something uh, up high right like some people playing basketball you know if you the task is to dump the basketball the tall mm-hmm. guy is better than a short guy. Right, because it's easier for the tall guy to dunk than it is for the short guy. You know? But this is only with respect to basketball. But that because you may be able to dunk a ball better than I can doesn't mean that God loves you more than he loves me. You know, so 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 we have to break out of this, you know. And this is a trick of Satan, right? You know, and, and, and so this particular slide, and I I I did it because I want to just highlight the fact that human beings are somewhat schizophrenic when it comes to this issue. Well, not someone. We are very schizophrenic when it comes to this question of something or someone being better than another. Right. You know, so, so we generally, when we talk about you know things, let's say we classify them. When we talk about life, friends instance, living things, right? If you ask the average person, is a is is animal life better than plant life? Right. Now, is a plant better than a a a, a I don't know a human being or better than a fish? Right. You know. Now. Of course, if you can talk about if you want to eat it, right, you know, some people may say I, I prefer the plant over the fish, right, in terms of my diet, you know, but in terms of this overall sort of um um utility, I guess you would say, um we would say that the animal, we come to accept that the animals are better than plants, and, and why not? Because you know, if we say the opposite, then that would mean that we believe that a tree is better than a human being. You know, which of course seems the direction that a lot of people are going right now today, anyway, right? Because you know, yes. say, there's three so people here. We got to save the planet, right? You know, human beings mean nothing, right? You know, let's let's save the planet. You know, even the planet is going to survive regardless of, uh, whether or not people are here on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so we do buy into this idea that some things are better than others. You know, so we can move on from from plant life to animal life, and then talk about. Human, human human, beings and non-human animals, right? Which are better? Humans are or animals, right? We generally accept that human beings are better because we we'll say, oh, human beings are irrational, we articulate, you know, we ain't been able to conquer and subdue all the other animals, right? Um, um, so we generally accept that as being a, a a given, right, that human beings are better. Now, of course, some person can argue and say, well, when it comes to, like, for instance, if you want to uh, the question of climbing, like you know, you or a monkey, right? A monkey's better than a human being when it comes to climbing, you know, uh, uh a, a, a a cheetah is, is faster than a human being, you know, a, a gorilla can overpower a human being, you know, so so in terms of physical strength or speed, those animals are better than human beings, right? So because so everything anytime we talk about the issue of betterness uh um or betterness uh then we fundamentally are uh Everything itself has everything is subject. Everything is relative, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, because we've seen throughout our history, are Jews better than Gentiles? Are Arabs better than non-Arabs? Are whites better than non-whites? Are blacks better than non-blacks? All of these are things that have have emerged throughout human history, and I would say the fundamental problem, or problem, we would say that the birth of those particular movements often are the presumption that being better means more love right by God right and that's the fundamental mistake that I think people have made and so 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 in a sense this particular book it actually takes us back to this question right right he doesn't speak about it directly but the implications of such a book uh are that uh that God he has favored certain people and things over others but that favoriteness does not necessarily mean that God loves those one uh, more than the other, right? Not necessarily, right? You know, and every responsibility itself or every advantage, every favor that exists is a source of responsibility. So it's a greater burden on the one who has the advantage over the other. So the Mm -hmm. one who doesn't have that quality doesn't have to answer for not doing the right thing with that quality but the one who has equality has a greater burden. So a lot of times when we're talking about equality, you know, you want to be, women want to be equal with men. Really what you're saying is that I want to have equal burdens as men do as well. Right. But God hasn't given you the, the, the traits necessary in order to bear those burdens. And that's the reason why he's not made those burdens an obligation upon you. Right. So, so this is an important thing and 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 so this particular verse in surah an-nisa uh is in a, a, a i think it's a perfect uh, illustration of 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 what god or allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he means <laughs> um or or i guess you would say a a a perfect way to explain like why God has favored some over others. You know, so it's a difficult verse, <inaudible> that covered not what by which God has given favor to some of you over others, right? So covered not what by which God has given favor to some of you over others. Men receive a share of what they earn, and women receive a share of what they earn, and ask God from his bounty. Indeed, God has knowledge of everything. So in other words, there are some things Uh, that God had given some people that he has not given to others. And those some things are innate to who they are. Mm. Uh, And so when God says covet not that by which God has given to you, given to some, but not given to others, meaning fundamentally we're talking about, for instance, the physical um, distinctions, right? A man should not want to be a woman. A woman should not want to be a man, right? Um, You know, and I've either inherited Physical uh, being, physiology, reproductive health, et cetera, et cetera, Um, nor with respect to the particular um, social, political advantages that God has given to men over women, based upon Scripture, right? You know, so so in other words, if God has said men have an obligation to defend women, right? In jihad, men have the obligation to give, provide maintenance, monetary maintenance to their wives and to Mm. take take care of their children and to take care of their parents if they're poor, right? And Mm. to pay the for his wife, right? That these are things that God has made compulsory upon men to do, but not for women.
2: Mm. Can can I just, sorry, just, I I, I can't resist um, mentioning this. Um, It was tweeted earlier on, there's a, Um, an article in today's Guardian, which is a a British uh, newspaper we did online, which said, and this kind of illustrates your point about what we're made in certain ways with certain responsibilities and obligations. Two gay men uh, uh, who both attended uh, law school, this is in the States, in the US, Mm -hmm. filed a legal complaint against the city of New York, arguing that not having access to a woman's reproductive potential is a form of discrimination that Mm -hmm. they are entitled to have the city pay for a quote-unquote surrogate. Um, And someone responded to this, um, clearly not very sympathetic with these two gay men. No one has a right to children they cannot naturally reproduce or produce. Two men claiming they have a right to a child through surrogacy or adoption means someone else is obliged to give them one. The rights of children he claims the, this author should be the focus of family policy not the desires of adults right exactly. again because two men are not made islamically to be able to produce children and right. this is not unjust this is not an example of discrimination or, or oppression or anything like that it's the way men are and children in fact should have the the center stage here in terms of rights and, and the good the, the welfare of their rights so I just want to say, this is yeah. a true example. Yeah. Is not the
3: day. yeah, that's a perfect example. Very perfect example. It's like, okay, God made you that way, and he made woman that other way, right? Yes. So if there's, if there's you are going to claim injustice, you're fundamentally saying that God was unjust by making you a man uh, and making woman, woman, right? Yeah. Uh, and so... So so again, so this verse is speaks directly to that. It says, like, "Listen, you know, don't want to be, don't desire to be something other than what God made you, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, uh, men receive a share of what they earn. Women receive a share of what they earn, right? Mm-hmm. Ask God from His bounty, which is really an important part here. So this, this this part of the verse, ask God from His bounty, fundamentally means ask God to change your condition in the areas where change is possible, right?" Mm-hmm. In other words, so so if you're poor, it's okay for you to want to be rich like someone else you know, right? Mm-hmm. if you're ignorant, it's okay for you to want to be uh, learned like like other people that you know, right? Mm-hmm. But with respect to the things that cannot change, right, is your biology, your DNA, right? Of course, you know they're working on that right now. <laughs> they, they, they they want they're trying their hardest to 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 change God's creation as the Quran said that they're going to do, right? You know, but but. But, but those are things uh, uh, but that change itself is not caused by God you know if it's not being caused by God then itself is itself a sin to begin with right uh, uh, that's the least we can say about it is a sin you know it's an abomination perhaps beyond that you know but don't pursue things that you can't change you know and so but this also pertains to again roles in society right so so Islam not only um, um, prescribes or sometimes demands uh that women have certain things that they do and men have certain things that they do right but 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 also they're just certain offices uh in society that uh, one particular um, member of the human species is allowed to 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 occupy where the other not allowed to occupy based upon scripture right so those areas OK, when, when those things happen, then say, well, no, uh, don't pursue them. Right? Don't pursue them. You know, again, so a woman, again, she said, well, I don't want my husband to take care of me because it makes me feel demeaned. You know, so I'm going to take care of myself. OK, no problem. You you can do that if you like. Right. But that's not what God desires. God mm-hmm. desires for your husband to take care of you. Right. You know, that's his desire. You know, see, So you're doing out of defiance and you're doing you're being ungrateful to God.
0: Right.
2: The whole thing, the the essence of Islam, as we've already said, is submission to God's will. And and this is something that is profoundly repugnant to the the modern uh, mentality, which is a stress on uh, extreme individualism, autonomy, autonomy of any uh, external uh, command or authority at all. Uh, and this is the the, the the fundamental issue here that this, this sense of uh refusing to submit but to, to, if it would be to anyone else that would be to understand the understandable. but to God who is the creator and sustainer of us all, who in fact owns us anyway, it's not mm-hmm. as if um that this is the great the great rebellion and the great irony that
3: we we, we refuse this uh, right, uh, exactly. in our, you know our moral mentality right exactly exactly right. So, so as we say, we can say that no favor is distinct from love, even if love invites favor, right? In other words, um, God may give someone certain gifts, physical gifts, and then sometimes social, political gifts, right? Uh, But that in itself doesn't translate to mean that God loves that person better than the one who doesn't have those things, right? You know, and the, and so we have to really drill this home, like really, like emphasize this over and over and over, because I believe that this is really what undergirds most of the discontent, most of the claims or the calls for like justice, you know, and but not in the but 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 ignores justice according to God, but it sort of embraces justice according to secular liberal society, right? So 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 it's it's it's, it's something that we really have to. Uh, fully embrace as believers, right, first and foremost, and then try best to reach other people as well to, to so they can understand and realize that this is really where their salvation is, is to be found, where their happiness is to be found, is submission to God's will, right? So the the, the final chapter, he deals with um, the following issues of each section in the final chapter. Of course, he deals with the matter of polygyny. Uh, polygyny, uh, as we know that Islam allows for men to have up to four wives. Uh, he goes into trying to explain, like some of the wisdoms for that, um, and I think that this is probably the least controversial of all the different sections in this particular chapter because it's been spoken about uh, quite often. Um, you know, the word guild, which is a word with the Arabic word for adia, right, which sometimes we call the blood wage or the blood money that one is paid. Pay, pay, it pays. In Islamic tradition, we find uh, their hadiths which mention that a muslim woman am not a muslim but a woman's the a woman's life is only you know if a woman's life is taken then one is obligated to pay 50 camels right in exchange for her life as a re- recompense um or a sort of like a reparations we say for the loss of her life is you know it's is a uh, a um, involuntary manslaughter right for instance mm. and or it can be voluntary too and then if it happens to a man, that one gives a hundred camels, right? Right. Which actually is like, is, is make, gives the impression that a woman's life is less valuable than a, a man's life, right? Now, th- this is probably one of the most interesting chapters in the book or sections in that chapter because um, he highlights, for instance, how scholars historically have somewhat struggled with this particular issue, right? You know, in other words, scholars like Ibn Qayyim al attempted to offer a rational um, explanation for this, right? So, just, so this hadith exists, the prophet said, it's there's a rational explanation. It's because men are just more valuable or have greater utility than women do, right? You know, and they give examples, like, well, men are held all the highest offices and government, and in other words, he said that those particular, uh, the roles that men play they have a greater, a much more general benefit on society. Therefore, um, when their lives are taken, um, they they should be, we should pay more for for that, right? Uh, One of the uh, great Hanafi scholars of the 20th century, Mustafa Zarqa on the other hand says, no, this has everything to do with the fact that, um, that when a a, for instance, a husband is lost, a father is, is, is life is, is taken in the family, or, or he dies. That because the wife and the children rely upon him, um, then there's a um, you know also this also affects them right financially right. So it's not so he dies, then it's as if the entire family dies. But if the mother dies, since she doesn't have these financial obligations, right? she's only an individual not to say that that's not important she's an important individual but it's only her because she doesn't have these financial obligations right therefore she only receives or the only thing she paid for her uh her the loss of her life is half of what's paid for the husband
2: and and that that explanation is not just based on uh scholarly speculation it's based on the quran's teaching itself in 434 where you know god says that, that the man has Responsibility, a caretaking role, providing for his wife and his children, and so on. So right, yeah. this, is part, this is part of the the essence of the Quranic teaching that this difference in financial responsibilities and provision for other people.
3: Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. that verse is it very much emphasizes the the issue of the obligation of 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 the husband to be the caretaker. I mean, sustainer of the family, or in particular, the wife. Right. You know. But what's interesting about this is that Sheikh Muhammad takes a different approach here. So he says, okay. These are two opinions that exist, but both of them are incorrect. <laughs> he, says, he says, you know what, that, you know, that rather the reason that a woman's word guilt is half the word guilt of a man is because she's a woman. And the reason that a man's word guilt is twice that of a, of a woman's is because he's a man. That's it. There's no other reason. In other words, God has not given us any particular information to explain why this judgment exists. Therefore, we default to divine command theory. We default to volunteerism. That you know, that we hear, we say we hear and we obey, oh God. We don't understand why you have passed the judgment, you know, but we still submit. But he goes further and say, okay, well, if we were saying, okay, if the Caim Josiah's opinion it exists, it's okay, well it's true. But not every man holds public office. Not every man does this thing. As a matter of fact, most men don't hold public office, right? So to say that, okay, that those men, you know, that they should, you know, their, their lives be treated differently from the lives of, of women, you know, then, you know, when they themselves don't hold any any office similar to that or do the things that Ibn al-Qayyim had, had listed, it's like, well, you know, uh, that would seem to be inconsistent, right? To, you know, to what to the reality on the ground, and also with regard to uh, uh, Mustafa Zonka, he, he says it's it's just simply incomplete. It's not sufficient explanation for things. And so she said, and when, so when we're not able to find a sufficient a sufficient explanation, we default to divine command theory, right? You know. And so this is like often when people say uh, or they are asked the question, okay, why is it that Muslims don't eat pork, and Muslims used to say they may still say this today, but I know when I was growing up, Muslims would say, oh, the reason we don't eat pork yeah. is because a pig yeah. is a filthy animal. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but my, my response is well if you wash a pig and put a pink bow on it and put it in a nice bed for its entire life, then it would, would be a problem, would it? You're gonna eat right, it right. then. I mean right. of it. Mm-hmm.
3: right, exactly. Yeah. You know. and, and so 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 it's a filthy animal and they eat anything, you know. that's okay, well, what about fish? Right. A fish will eat anything you throw to it as well. Right. Um, and, um, okay, but you're allowed to eat fish. Right? Mm-hmm. so in other words, if the, the explanation is insufficient as an effective cause, right? For the, for the judgment itself, right? You know, so, so it's like we don't eat pork because God says, don't eat pork, right? Exactly. You know, it's not that the, the pig, maybe, maybe, or we'll say, well, we'll say, maybe it's not that the pig is cursed you know, or that's filthy, or maybe the pig is blessed. I don't know, I mean, God decided to spare the pig from being slaughtered, right? As opposed to like lamb, lambs and goats and, and, and cows, maybe they're cursed, I don't know, maybe they did something in their past and God cursed them, it could be the opposite, you know, of what we generally think, right? In other words, the basic point is just that, that when we don't find a an express, an express statement that this is why, right? And, and and we also don't have enough evidence in scripture to conclude that this is why. Then we default to divine command theory. You know, we pray five prayers of the pray, pray, five prayers a day. Uh, we don't know why Fajr is two and Maghrib is three, right? Or that you know, that the prayers during the daytime are silent and those at night are, are audible, right? We don't really understand why, you know, and the numbers of the nafa, the voluntary prayers connected, why? What's the the, 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 the the wisdom and the reason for those things? We really don't know, but we still do them. We comply, right, with God's commandment, right? So when we're not able to find explanation, we don't have to create one, right? right? We just simply say, okay, well, this is what God expects of us, right? Right. So another issue just was the question of testimony, because of course that's one of those other uh, controversial things as well, which is comes right from sort of the Baqarah, where Allah says that with respect to business transaction, you know, that you to take two men as your witnesses to two to witness two men to witness the transaction. And if they're not two men, then one man and two women, right? Um, and, and so that one of them remind the other, right? If the other she forgets, right? So this is mentioned in the Quran, right? Now of course there are those today who say well okay uh, this is a particular judgment that um, that needs to change right because why should two women be equal to one man you know so this is a sign that islam it favors men over women you know or that men are better than better than women right and unfortunately there are many muslim men who actually believe that too right you know so there is a problem in some sense right you know and so some would say okay oh that was be that was when that was when women weren't very educated. Right. So so for that. So so that. So back then it makes sense. You know? But today, women are more educated. Therefore, we should change the rules. Right. And so Sheikh Muhammad Tawil says, no. Right. This is this is not the reason. Right. Because testimony is only it, only someone saying or relaying what they heard or what they saw. And that in itself does not require some special type of education, right? They don't care if you have a PhD or you just finished high school or you have a GED or just you didn't finish school laws like it doesn't matter. You saw something, you heard something, right? And it's, and testimony is built upon memory, right? So you don't have to be of a certain level of education, right? But then you go further and say, says, okay, well, okay, uh, women today are much more educated than women in the past. You know, but women didn't become more educated today, you know, to the exclusion of men. Right. So if there's a situation with that, okay, men were smarter than women, you know, say one to five, you know, then the situation technically hasn't changed today because men are still educated. So men have evolved just like women have evolved at the same time. So we're still at square one, right? Right. If you are gonna say that this is the argument for that, you know. So again, he's a strong proponent for divine command theory. So he says, okay. This is the situation. God hasn't given us sufficient uh, information to know exactly why this is. Therefore, we just simply obey Allah's commandments, you know, in business transactions. Um, if, if, if a woman, if, a, if two men are not there, there's a man and two women. We include uh, the man and two women, you know, in that contract to actually bear witness to that particular deal happening right so 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 he's very like this is an example of what I mean by him being unapologetic he's like well this is the tradition this is what scholars have been teaching for centuries you know and I believe that they were correct in what they taught you know but every attempt to try to explain or to provide or offer a um uh, a, uh, a an explanation or reason an effective cause we would say, for these particular judgments anything they fail right because Allah hasn't provided a clear um articulation of that or or two uh he does hasn't, hasn't provided even a strong indication of what that reasoning might be right so so this is how he approaches this one as well right um and, uh, the next one is the Christian issue of leadership right? mm. yeah and so here he's <laughs> it, very controversial at least for us today as well you know once again he challenges, the uh the common uh wisdom you know which is that okay woman can hold uh public office woman can um hold positions in of leadership uh mm-hmm. in every aspect of society you know she can be the president she can be uh
2: well, the minister. A prime minister in the uk she's a, a woman obviously and uh mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, just our our, pre- our previous monarch, uh, the Queen, obviously was yes. a woman. And now we have a man, so right. we're sw- switching the genders around a bit.
3: Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 it, his position is that a woman is not allowed to hold any uh, leadership position. Now, so, before people would say, "Okay, oh well, he's he's backwards, right?" You know, so, so well, how, how can he say that? Again, coming back to the earlier point about commitment to scripture, right? yeah he is not motivated by animus against women right he is motivated by his understanding of something that he believes the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam said and yeah, that's that i
2: mean what, what did the prophet upon him be peace say i mean could, could you share what the relevant hadith right,
3: so so there's a hadith very well known hadith which says that no people who appoint a woman to head their affairs shall be prosperous prosperous no people will prosper prosper, who ha- who appoints a woman to head their affairs. Right. Right. So, yeah, is, is this,
2: is this the, the most general, I mean, correct me, obviously I'm wrong, but is, is it usually the universal or most general sense that is taken as the, the first, the normative sense, unless there's a really particular reason for restricting that meaning to a local historical circumstance? In other words, this really is a general statement about all time and not about a particular set of circumstances in the Prophet's own life?
3: Right in his, in his in his opinion, it's it's universal. It's trans yeah. It's for it's yeah. permanent. It's permanent, right? And and so and so of course there have been scholars who say, okay, well the prophet when he said that he only said it after the, uh, the the kisra his daughter you know had taken over, right after after during a particular battle you know so he died and so they appointed his daughter and then the prophet made this statement so that some would say well, the prophet was specifically talking about this. Now, but the prophet could have specifically spoken about that if he wanted to, but rather he made a general statement about women in general and about people in general and about their uh, their, their affair in general, right? You know, and 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 this is really again, this is uh, when I look at the Sheikh's argument, you know, uh, I personally find it almost impossible. Well, I find it impossible really to. To defeat his argument from a strictly linguistic standpoint. Right. Like you know, anyone who knows Arabic and they read that hadith, right? You know, and he and he analyzes it, he breaks it down. You know, he, he deals with every part of the hadith and then says what he has to say. But then, but then, he, but then he raises the, the question, the general sort of contention that people will, will, will raise. And they say, okay, well, there are multiple countries and, and, and that, that women have led and have led to great success and great prosperity.
2: <laughs> Queen Yosheba is, is mentioned or alluded to in the Quran. Um, right. example. Um, yeah.
3: Right, and so and he, and he talks about Queen Sheba as well, you know, but I'll come back to that in a second, you know, but he says, so people say, okay, there are many examples of this, right, you know, of women leading societies, you know, and, being, and those societies being prosperous, prosperous and being successful. And he says, the problem is you have a misunderstanding of what is meant by prosperity, right? Mm. When the prophet when the prophet talks about prosperity, he's not talking about material prosperity. He's not talking about economic prosperity or or military prosperity, et cetera, right? He's not talking about that. The Prophet sallam, did not come to, to necessarily teach us about how to be successful in this life, right? In other words, you know, as a person committed to the dunya, right? Uh, but he's come to sh- to, sh- to give us knowledge of salvation of the hereafter. So he says, farah, or the word for prosperity, is a reference to um, otherworldly prosperity. Right? In other words, this hadith is telling us that if you appoint a woman to lead this particular um, office, then you are acting in disobedience to God. Mm. And, and that in itself is going to lead to your failure when you meet Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he gives an example. He says the same word but that is translated as prosperity is repeated in the adhan. When the when we say, yeah. right. come to prosperity, come to prosperity. He mm-hmm. said, no one would claim that yeah. the adhan is calling you to worldly prosperity. It's yes. calling you to otherworldly prosperity, right? So, so he, said, he said, "We're not denying." He said, "No, no, we're not denying that that women have led societies and they do lead societies, right? And great economic prosperity results from that, you know. However, this is not what the prophet's talking about, right? You know. And so, so, so his position is that no woman should be in." or it was because he passed away in 2015, is that no woman should be, hold public office or be in a leadership position, you know, and if they are, you know, then they're acting in disobedience to to the prophet, to to Allah's messenger, uh, and the people who appoint her and follow her, that they are also being disobedient to uh, Allah and his messenger, This is his his opinion, right, on on this point. But I can say from a a strictly legalist, uh, from a a strictly linguistic standpoint, I found I find his argument to be unassailable. It's, 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 it's really ironclad, right, realistically, right, from a strictly linguistic standpoint uh, 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 here, right? You know, so 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 again, but the basic point is this, is that some people say, okay, where well, there you go. We went, we, that's exactly what we're talking about. Islam prefers men over women, that, that 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 Islam actually it doesn't give women an op- an opportunity to flourish. And so we say, no, 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 no that this is not, this understanding doesn't originate from uh, animus against woman and the desire to prevent woman to hold public, public office. This originates from the desire to comply with commandments of Allah and his messenger. This is where this comes from, it, it, it comes from here, right? So if you're a believer, right? Uh, and you believe that the prophet said this, you believe that Allah said this, right? And no ambiguity remains, right, about those statements, then, you're expected to comply, right, with hmm. the commandments of, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right. And then the last three sections, you know, he so he talks about divorce. And so the so uh,
2: Shaykh, so you're gonna mention the Queen of Sheba uh very briefly. Oh, yeah, uh, right, she, 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 Thank she, you
3: she, for she, the right. So so he, he mentioned the, the question of, of Queen of Sheba. And he said, Yes, that this is mentioned in the Quran. Uh the Quran even talks about that that she was given everything. In other words, there was her, her society flourished, right? Right. She even was a uh, she counseled her, her counselors, you know, when she needed to do things. Um, um, she took a different approach, right, to 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 government, you know, in particular, respond responding to threats, right? Um, and so, so he said, so Sheikh Muhammad Ta'wil says that yes, this is in the Quran, but she was a kafirah, she was an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. At that time, and the last time I checked, a believer <laughs> doesn't take the example of a non believer to mm-hmm. justify what they do, right? Mm-hmm. Right, you know, and so once she actually, of course, um, she had come to say "Man, you know, she eventually made Toba, she repented, you know, and said that she repented to God, of course, for her idolatry and other things like that, you know, but, um, of course, someone could say, but maybe she meant also her. Uh, from her accepting to be placed over uh, of given charge in this particular regard, because Suleiman's so his re, his demand of her was for her to come to him submiss- submissively, to surrender to him, to surrender to his rule, right? You know, so right. there is an aspect of that that can be can be highlighted here, you know, and one can 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 debate it and argue it, right? And so the last three sections, then, I'll try to go through them as as, as quickly as possible, but. Um, He speaks about the question of of divorce and whether or not a woman should have a right to initiate a divorce, right? So he Mm. talks about how Islam, on the Quran, has given men the unilateral right to divorce their wives, right, um, Mm. on any occasion, right? But a woman doesn't have that same right, right, as men do, right? And this is from the Quran. Right. A woman can actually achieve a divorce, as we know, but she has to go about it in a different manner. Right. Yeah. She has to establish grounds. She goes to the courts. You know, yeah. she can request a divorce from her husband, right? And he can allow it, he can authorize it himself, right? We call it a khula. Right. But um, but a woman, she can't just wake up one day and decide that, oh, I don't I don't love you anymore, I don't want to abuse you anymore, I divorce you. Mm-hmm. Right. So so, so he 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 offers he attempts to offer some reasons why men are given um are given that particular advantage and women are not given it. And he talks and some of them he mentions their physiological, their psychological issues, emotional examples that. And so this is the area that where he sort of he departs from his normal
2: uh, you <laughs> know
3: uh, yeah. divine command theory approach. You know mm-hmm. where he's like, okay, well, and then he goes into um these other um, explanations or super uh, scriptural explanations, mm-hmm. uh, for like why this could be, right? Um, you know, but but generally, generally, he he remains committed to the normal approach, right? Yeah. And then in inheritance laws, in other of those cases, you say, okay, men get uh, twice the amount that women do, which is not a universal rule. And he highlights this, is not a universal rule. But I think one thing that's really important that he highlights in this chapter, because he talks about a uh, Jewish woman, right, and mm-hmm. Jewish uh, children, and with respect to the 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 laws of inheritance, you know. So he highlights the highlights highlights the fact that if you actually were to compare the Islamic laws of inheritance to the Jewish laws of inheritance, the Jewish laws of inheritance are much more unjust, quote unquote, mm-hmm. than the Islamic laws of inheritance when it comes to women, right? Uh, but he said, if you don't see Jewish women calling to uh, to to revolutionize or to revise right their their inheritance. I mean well, we're talking about the committed Jewish women, those are actually still committed to their religious beliefs, not those who actually have reform reform-minded people, right? But but it says, but he's like, okay, we don't really find it's not a it's not a a big uh public conversation in the same way that is a public conversation about Islam. So why is it that they're focusing only on Islam and Islamic law mm-hmm. and they're not focusing on Jewish law. Or the law yeah. of other religions, you know, what she says, which should be one of the greatest proofs that this is not a genuine concern, that this is about colonization, this is about domination, right? Right, because if there was a genuine concern, then those people are attacking Islam for what they consider to be unjust laws, they would also be attacking Jews, if not more, you know, but they choose not to do so, right? For whatever reason, right? So so, so he, uh, he highlights this, and then he also highlights the centrality of women in Islamic inheritance law. You know, so he mentions, okay, well, it's not universal that women receive half of what a man receives, uh, but also more than that, you know, of the women who actually listed as natural heirs in Islamic law, um, they never are, are, are barred from inheriting. But Mm -hmm. most of the men who actually are listed that we call residuaries, the residuaries can be barred from inheriting in certain cases. If there's nothing left, those men get nothing, right? But women, the women who actually are the natural heirs are never barred from inheriting something, some part of the portion of the inheritance, right? And then lastly, he deals with the question, uh, we call it charge in the matter of qiwama and the qiwama again you had alluded to this earlier in about verse 434 what allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that men are the caretakers of women you know, because of what favor or what merit god has given some of them over others and because of what they spend of their wealth so <coughs> excuse me so so here it's like okay well men have this 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 responsibility of a woman. Uh, They have the right of charge of a woman, and women don't have the right of charge of a man, right? And then he mentions some scriptural evidences for that. He mentions some rational reasons for this, you know, and I just want to, I wanted to conclude and just read uh, uh, the last, the the concluding paragraph of of that chapter, you know, which I think uh, is very um, enlightening. So he says, Uh, Lastly, isn't it strange that currently you see the woman who rejects the husband's charge over her and refuses to obey him in good is the same one we see dedicated today to the obedience of her president and management, the office and the factory without discussing with him anything he requests from her or orders her to do. While those who who protest in defense of her freedom are those who impose upon her obedience to them and the implementation of their orders then neither the woman nor those protesting consider that a violation of her dignity, nor her sanctity, nor a restriction of her freedom. So what has afflicted their minds and led them to fall into this embarrassing contradiction? Obedience to the husband is an assault. uh, I'm sorry. Obedience to the husband is an insult to his wife, while obedience to the president is a welcome duty. So, um, yeah, so, so this is, like I said, through uh, an important aspect of his, um, his book you know, highlighting uh, the reasons why these issues are even raised. And so Muslims have to understand, uh, of course, that while there are problems, you know, among um, some men and some women who are Muslim, that these issues are constantly being raised by people who don't mean us um, to to reconcile. They don't mean us to live in peace and in harmony, right? We mm-hmm. are believers. Uh, we believe in Allah, we believe in the Qur'an, we believe in the Messenger, alayhi salatu right? And this is the foundation of our faith, the book and the sunnah, right? And if we are committed to those things, then we will not be offended by um, any of the things that uh, we find in the Qur'an. And if we do find things that are difficult to take in, we at least, we at least should, should say to ourselves, God has to have a wisdom in this, I might not know that wisdom, but God must have a wisdom in why he legislated this or gave these individuals this charge, and they didn't give it to me, you know. And so I and I and I submit to God, right? And and I and I pray that he allow me entrance into his garden. You know? And that should be uh, our attitude, at least this is what the Sheikh calls to, and I think that classical scholars generally call to this as well. Mm. <laughs>
2: Great. well thank you very much uh, <clears throat> for that very lucid and fascinating exposition of, of the book that you have obviously translated um into english i think it's a valuable work that responds to claims that islamic law is unjust and biased against women and um i will place um, a link to uh the lamp post uh website which um is a place where you can uh, not only read more of your articles that you mentioned but uh obtain a copy of this book um which i'm personally looking forward to having my own copy in due course as well i think there's much uh much worth investigating in more detail there so thank you very much indeed dr abdullah ali for your expertise and your time and the sheer effort you put in into um sharing this uh wisdom from the recently uh deceased uh scholar in uh, Morocco. so thank you very much for that thank you thank you paul appreciate it okay well we'll leave it there until next time
0: thank you say goodbye